Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we do ask that as we approach this text, the beginning, the introduction to this great letter written by Paul to the church at Rome, Lord, we pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts so that we might understand it, Lord, and so that we would love it, and that we would rejoice in it, and Lord, that we would be different because of it. Lord, help us to see what Paul intended to say to the church at Rome, and help us to understand, Lord, what that declares about you most supremely, and Lord, what it tells us or how we ought to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, maybe you have, I, I have, is we often talk about Jesus and read of Jesus as if he's some kind of a distant story. Does that happen to you guys? As if he's some kind of a distant story. We talk about him, his life, you know, how he lived it, what he did, the deeds he participated in, and his death as if it's kind of a fairy tale almost, right? It just seems so distant from us often. And so fairy tale like to us. And I think as a result, we often trivialize him. We often trivialize him. I was reminded of this actually today. I was at Long's drugstore picking up an extension cord and heading back toward my office. And my wife calls and I answer the phone. And Teresa had been at home reading through a storybook Bible to the kids. And she was reading through the story, and she called me up, and she goes, Hey, Chad, I just got to the part. She'd been reading from Genesis all the way through, and she just got to the part where um, they nailed Jesus to the cross, and he dies. And she said, Jared's weeping. You know, and kind of like, what should I do? And I said, well, that's the appropriate response. Don't discourage it. That's an appropriate response. And after I got off the phone, I, I actually I had told her right before I got off the phone, go ahead and read on through the resurrection and help <laughs> you know. But, but uh, after I got off the phone, I thought to myself, you know, I don't remember a time that I've ever really wept over the death of Christ in that way. That I really understood in a very real sense that Jesus, our Messiah, was murdered just kind of trivialize it. I put it off as a distant story, detach it from myself in some way that I can just theologize about it and never really stop and understand him and who he was and that he was killed. I was also struck by how much our culture, our modern culture, does the same thing. It's not just me. It's not just you, it's our whole culture. We come up with some strange ideas about Jesus. And they're either really odd ideas or they're just ideas that trivialize him. Um, Some of the ones that trivialize him, for example, we hear that he is a good moral teacher. Some people say that. Or that he was a prophet. Specifically, the Muslims say that. Or some say, and this is one that tends to trivialize him, and maybe it's just crazy, that he was a new age, some kind of enlightened new age nut. I mean, people actually go around talking about that Jesus. I, I met a guy who believed in that Jesus over in Santa Barbara, and he had this van all tricked out with all kinds of crazy stuff with Jesus all over it and 
Some of you, I think, were there with me. And he had this idea of Jesus as just this kind of enlightened, new age, crazy, marijuana-smoking guy. Really, he did. It was just totally trivializing him. And some, I hear this one said a lot, and you guys have probably heard it. He's God in a bod. You heard that? God in a bod. And I don't know when I hear that, is this a, some sort of a popular attempt to restart Apollinarianism? Probably not, because most people don't know what that is. But the restart of Paul is, is this idea that Jesus is God who just kind of inhabits a human body. There is no human soul. There's no human spirit. It's just he takes on a body, just kind of a shell and just fills it up with his divinity. That's Apollinarianism. He's not fully human. I don't think that's what people mean when they say that. I don't think that's what they mean. I actually think what they're doing is just kind of giving some sort of Jesus slogan. He's God in a bod, like he's a slogan that we use. And it just kind of trivializes him, frankly, in my mind. Plus, just the implications of it are incorrect, but that's another side issue. (laughs) Scripture is clear that he's much more than all this. Just clear that he is so much more than all of this. Jesus is fully man and fully God. Jesus is the one toward whom all history was moving And now he's the one toward whom we continue to look back on. And at the same time, the one whom we continue to look forward to as he comes to eventually consummate his kingdom. All of history was moving toward him, looks back on him, and is continuing to move toward him. That's who Jesus is. He's the centerpiece of all of it. God created to glorify his son. Through his people. He wanted to give his son a gift. The bride. And that's all of creation exists for that purpose. In other words, and I want to say this. Jesus is the good news. He is the good news. He is the gospel. The last time when we discussed Jesus as the good news, we focused specifically on him as the eternally pre-existent son of God. That was the gospel is Jesus Christ, part one. Jesus Christ as the eternally pre-existent son of God. As we continue in verses three and four, I want to give you the three important overarching facts about Jesus as the focus of the gospel. So not only is he the eternally pre-existent Son of God in verse 3, where it starts off and it says this, concerning His Son. Not only is He that, He is also the true Son, Messiah, and servant of God in the rest of verse 3, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And next week, we'll talk about the fact that He is the fully divine and promised resurrected King of the Old Testament. He is the promised resurrected King In the Old Testament. And he's fully divine. He is all of those things. In verses 3 and 4. Tonight as we look at the second important fact about Jesus. That he is the true son, Messiah. And servant of God. As we look at that. I want you to see. That not only is that true. But that he's also rejoiced in. By the father. And this is our hope of salvation. Did you hear that? Jesus is the true son, Messiah, and servant of God who is rejoiced in by the Father. And this is the hope of our salvation. Today I want to look first at the four facets, really, of the identity of Jesus in our text, which is the rest of verse 3 that we're in. And second, I want to show you the Father's delight in Jesus is the hope of our salvation. That's what I want to look at. That's the whole thing. But as an aside, you know, before we dive in to that whole main body, the sermon, what I really want to do is I want to give you the structure of verses 3 and 4 and how they break down. Because next week I'll be talking about verse 4, but verses 3 and 4 are really a unit. And grammatically, I want to show you how they break down so that as we take on the rest of verse 3, you'll know where we're going in verse 4. Look at... With me at verse 3. But actually I would say start in verse 1 really. Where Paul identifies himself 
And he gets to this part where he says, set apart for the gospel of God. What's interesting about that, by the way, is that B.B. Warfield made the comment that this is Paul's tendency, what comes after this, where he says, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul has this, by the way, B.B. Warfield was a Princeton seminary professor back in the late 1800s. Um, and just phenomenal mind in theological circles. And he made this comment that Paul had this habit of kind of taking off on a word. Like he'd hit a word in his writing, and then all of a sudden he would just kind of take off on it. He'd launch. It's like, oh, wow, I got a lot to say about that. Right? He just hit it, and then... So he says, gospel of God. And then it's all of a sudden he takes off on that word, the gospel of God. He just launches off on it, and he gives us his whole description which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He says, look, this gospel of God is not new news, it's good news. But it's good old news. It's news that was already prophesied and promised since man fell into sin. It's not new, but it's good. And then he goes on and he says, this gospel of God is a gospel concerning or about or focused on his son. Focused on his son. And he goes on and he says this. Who was descended from David according to the flesh. And was declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what Paul's doing grammatically so you know. He's taking these two phrases. If I had a chart that I could put them on, I'd show you. Concerning God's Son is here. Jesus Christ our Lord is here. It's the parallel. Those are two parallel concepts that are bracketing these two verses. They're bracketing them. In between, there's these two participial phrases. These two participles that launch off these phrases. The first participles in verse 3, look what it says. Who was descended? See that? Descended is the first one. That's the first phrase, and he launches off. Who was descended? And the second one is in verse 4. And was declared. You guys see that? That's the second participle. That starts the second phrase. And those two participles are also parallel. So, Son of God, right? Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in between those two things is bracketed who was descended, or who was descended, and who was declared. It's telling us two separate things about him that are parallel. You guys with me so far? Beyond that, he also tells us these other things that are parallel. Listen, he was descended from David. And he was declared what? To be the son of God in power. From David and the son of God in power are also parallel. He's descended from David. He's the son of God in power. Okay? The other things that are parallel here is this, where it says he was descended from David according to the what? Flesh. And he was declared the son of God of power, what? According to the spirit of holiness. Those are also parallel. And then Paul tags on this by his resurrection from the dead. <laughs> but those are the parallel concepts. And these two things are going to form a contrast that I want you to see as we bring out, and, and we're really especially going to look at that contrast next week. We try to understand verse 4. But there is a lot of information that Paul just takes off on and dumps into one little small text. This is a short text in which Paul dumps a ton of biblical theology. And he does it through grammatically structuring it through these kind of parallels. My goal this week really is only to look at the first half of that parallel, which is who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's my goal. What we learn in that parallel is that he is the true son, the true Messiah, and the true servant of God. That's what we learn in that first parallel. And there are really four facets of it as identity that are brought out. The four facets of the identity of Jesus that are directly stated or alluded to in this text are these. One, he's fully man. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He's fully man. And I'll, I'll break that down a little bit more. Second, he's the promised Davidic Messiah. 
is the promised Davidic Messiah. Descended from David. Why? Why does Paul even talk about that? There's something about the nature of the promised Davidic Messiah that Paul is getting into there. Third, he's the true Israel. He is the true Israel. Fourth, he is the humble, suffering servant. He's the humble, suffering servant. Now, if you didn't get all those, that's okay, because I'm going to go through them all and say you will. Jesus is fully man. Paul first says that Jesus was descended according to the flesh. This word descended can be made, you know, kind of in a sense talking about being born of or begotten. You've heard this kind of term being used. It's this idea that he comes from David according to the flesh. And from David is the word sperma or spermatos here specifically, from which we get the word sperm. And it's speaking of his physical descent. He is a man. And it says, according to the flesh. And the word flesh continues to bring focus on Jesus' nature. Because when Paul uses that word sarks or flesh, he doesn't just mean the physical body. He means the whole human nature. The soul, the body, you know, what we talk about is the mind, the heart, the will. He means all of that. John also used it that way. You know, in John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you go down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. And that was John's way of saying what? Jesus became a man. And he doesn't just mean he's God in a bod. It's not what he means. He means that he took on himself a full human nature. There are other proofs of his humanity right here in this text. If you look at Romans chapter 8, keep your finger there on Romans 1. But look at Romans chapter 8. Verse 3 says this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son. Here's the eternal preexistent son of God being sent. What? In the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, what he's saying there is, he's coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus obviously didn't come as a sinner. But it's in the likeness of. In other words, he took on a human nature but that wasn't sinful. In verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 5 of Romans, if you look one chapter more over, verse 5, this statement is made talking about the Israelites. Verse 5, he says, to them, to them being the Israelites, belong the patriarchs. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Belong the patriarchs. These are the guys in Genesis whom God brought the promise through initially. And from their race, from their race, you hear that? Hebrew race, speaking specifically of, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Fully God, fully man. In fact, more specifically, a Hebrew. There are other proofs of his humanity. For example, he was born of what? A woman. Galatians 4.4 4 says that. God sent his son at the, in the fullness of time. He sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law. In Galatians 4.4. 4. We also know from reading the accounts in Matthew and Luke that he had, a, he had a mother. Her name was Mary. She was pregnant. She carried him for nine months and gave birth to him. He was born of a mother or of a woman. He grew in physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. In Luke 2.52, it says of Jesus... That he grew in stature, right? It says he grew in his understanding. He grew in his favor with God, spiritually. And he grew in his favor with men, just like all of us do. That's his social growth. Grew in all the areas that we grow in. Physical, mental, social, and spiritual. He got hungry. He got thirsty. We've all read of that, right? He got tired, and he was sorrowful. 
almost to the point in the Garden of Gethsemane that some would say it was almost as if depression had set in. His spirit was so overwhelmed with the sense of the fact he was about to walk through the wrath of God. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, Hebrews 4, 15. He suffered pain, and he died. Those are all characteristics of humans, aren't they? Why did Jesus need to be fully human? He needed to be a man. Now listen, we'll deal with fully God next week. He needed to be a man in order to be our representative. He had to be faithful and obedient where we were not. Do you understand that? He needed to be a man in order to pay the penalty on our behalf. He had to be our representative substitute. And he needed to be a man to do that. He's the second Adam where the first Adam failed. In Romans 5, verse 18, it says this. Therefore, one trespass, that's speaking of Adam's sin, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, speaking of Jesus' life and death, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The first Adam failed. The first man failed. He was our first corporate representative. He failed and brought us into the state of sin and suffering and death. And so another man had to come to represent us. That's Jesus Christ. And he was our corporate representative. And he was faithful to the end. And he paid the penalty that was due us from the first man's sin and from our sin. That's why he had to be a man. Not only is Jesus fully man in verse 3, he is also, he is also the promised Davidic Messiah. You look here, it says, not only was he descended, but he was descended from David. Paul's use of the seed of David is specifically used to bring out the idea of Jesus as the Messiah. It's, in fact, followed at the end of verse 4, by the way, with Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what Christ means? It's the Greek word for what? Messiah. Just in case you missed it, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So he's saying specifically here in verse 4 that he's the Messiah, but he's also alluding to that, obviously, in saying from the seed of David. And in verse 1, he says he's the Messiah, doesn't he? Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, that he's a servant of. And at the end of verse 7, again, he says the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Messiah. It's not a last name, it's title. It's a title tells us what his role was. Paul is speaking here of the fulfillment of direct biblical prophecies or promises. Remember I told you in verse 2, God made all these promises in the Old Testament? And Paul's now going to reference some of them. God made these promises in the Old Testament to bring a Messiah through David. And now Paul's referencing them specifically. He's from the seed of David. And he goes on and he says this, or excuse me, I, I, I'll do this. I want you to turn with me just to Genesis. Turn to Genesis. And we're going to be in this book often as we're in Romans, I've noticed, um, back and forth into Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. I want you to see this. Martin Lloyd-Jones really pointed this out in a way that he's, he was a famous British Welsh preacher who's one of my heroes. And... He pointed out how God's prophecies start very general or promises start very general and, be, and grow increasingly specific. And it's really interesting. If you look for, at the first promise of the Messiah that's made, it's made in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you. This is, by the way, you is, the, is Satan and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's this reference 
to the first promise that through the seed of the woman, through a man, through the seed of the woman, would come a Messiah. And he would be a man, generally. That's the very general first promise. He would come through a woman, he'd be a man. It grows more specific. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. By the way, we can see that grow in in Genesis 15 and 17, but we won't look at those. I'll just use Genesis chapter 12 representatively of God's covenant with Abraham. He says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it gets more specific. Not as it only a seed from the seed of a woman, but now it's from the seed of Abraham specifically, that the Messiah will come. Not only will he be a man generally, he will be a Jewish man or a Hebrew. It grows in its specificity in, in Genesis chapter 49. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. Jacob, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jake, by the way, they had other sons too, but just to cut to the chase, Jacob is giving a blessing to his sons. And in Genesis 49... Verse 8, he gives us a blessing to Judah. He says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have, grown, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, now listen, speaking of this messianic rule, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So it gets more specific. Not only is it to man specifically, but then to the Jews through Abraham, even more specifically. And now to not just the Jews generally, but the tribe of Judah specifically the messiah will come to the tribe of judah now go to second samuel second samuel it's right after first samuel and just before first kings second samuel chapter 7 we see the promise grow in specificity starting in verse 8 by the way so you know this passage nathan is receiving a prophecy from the Lord or a word from the Lord, and he's supposed to go and tell this to David. So go and tell this promise to David. And here's, here's the promise, starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is where God makes the promise to David specifically. So now he goes humanity in general, the Jews more specifically, the tribe of Judah even more specifically, and now, most specifically, the house of David. The Messiah will come from the house of David. Is it any surprise then, when Matthew begins his gospel, 
the first thing he announces is this is the genealogy of what? Of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on and gives a genealogy. And it leads you all the way to Joseph, the father of David. And you say, ooh, oh, excuse me, father of David, father of Jesus. Say, wait a minute. How is Joseph the father of David? Obviously, I don't mean he's physically the father of David. Oh, Jesus, I keep saying that. Physically the father of Jesus. I don't mean that. What I mean is that he marries Mary, <laughs> Jesus' mother, right? He marries Jesus' mother. And they trace the genealogy that way to him as the husband of Mary, Jesus' mother. And it actually says of him that he's the son of David in more than one place. It says that of Joseph. In Luke chapter 3, there's another genealogy. People argue that that genealogy is actually the genealogy of Mary that leads all the way to his mother. And all the way through, it shows you how they came from Abraham, how they came from Judah, how they came from David, and all the way down to them. And they want you to understand that Jesus is the one who fulfills this prophecy that started in Genesis 3.15, traveled through Abraham, through Judah, through David, and now arrived in the Christ. I want you to understand that. And Paul says he's from the seed of David. Not only is Jesus then fully man, and not only is he the promised Davidic Messiah, he is the true Israel. He's the true Israel. In Exodus 4, it tells us that God actually called Israel, his people, the nation, he actually called them his son. In Exodus 4, verse 22, it says this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel's referenced as his firstborn son. Not only in Exodus, he's also referenced, Israel's also referenced as God's son in Jeremiah, chapter 31. It says this of Israel, chapter 31, verse 9, he says this. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas of, for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. By the way, this is the Lord talking about Israel. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. In Hosea, it says it again. Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child... I loved him. Now, I want you to stop and listen to this next phrase. Have you heard this before? And out of Egypt, I called my son. Heard that before? Matthew references that, doesn't he? Out of Egypt, I called my son. <laughs> Jesus is the true Israel. I want you to catch a hold of this. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's son. And now Jesus is referred to as God's son. He is the true vine where Israel was the false vine. They wanted to be the true vine, but they were disobedient. But Jesus was faithful. He was obedient where they were disobedient. Jesus fulfilled everything that was promised to them. They were like a type of him. They were the foreshadowing of him. He was the promised one. He was Abraham's seed. Even Paul points that out in Galatians 3. He says it doesn't say to seeds. It says to seed singular. And the seed is Christ. Speaking of Abraham, the promise of God to Abraham. 
He's the true Israel. And if Jesus is God's true son, if he's God's true Israel, then membership in the people of God depends on being rightly related to Christ. Understand that? If he is the true Israel, then membership in the people of God depends on being rightly related to him. Finally, in this verse, it says that Jesus, I think, brings out the idea that Jesus is the humble, suffering servant promised in the Old Testament. You're going to say, wow, I don't see that anywhere in here, Chad. When it says that he was descended from David according to the flesh, while I believe that Paul meant that Jesus was human, I don't believe that Paul meant that Paul only meant to say that Jesus was human. He makes a contrast between according to the flesh and according to the spirit of holiness. And Paul has throughout his theology, and I'll show you this much more next week, has throughout his theology this this kind of contrast that happens between flesh and spirit, or what we call sarks and pneuma, flesh and spirit. He has this contrast that happens throughout his theology. And what that contrast really focuses on the old order versus the new order. The life that leads to sin and suffering and death versus the new resurrected life, which is perfect, and you never suffer and you never die. Do you guys understand that? And so he's saying that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. He was a part of the old order. He walked in this world as a man who could suffer, as a man who could sin yet never did. And I'm not referencing, by the way, whether I believe Jesus is impeccable or, you know, peccable, which is a whole other theological topic. Could he sin or could he not? I'm not referencing that. The point is, he could be tempted to sin in every way, yet he was without sin. He could do that. He could suffer. And he could die. That's the old order of things. And Jesus walked among it. I want to say this, when Jesus becomes a man, we can't help but stop and realize that that is inextricably linked to humility. For the Son of God to become a man is the most humbling thing I can think of. It's inextricably linked to it. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, because I think Paul brings this out best in Philippians 2, and we'll return to it again next week. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul is writing to the church, by the way, here, and explain to them how to have a good attitude and be unified, because they're not. And he says this in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, had the nature of God, did not, he, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not have to hold on to that. But what? But made himself nothing. By the way, that's what it means to become a human. <laughs> made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, being found, taking onto himself humanity, being found in humanity, he does what? He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Listen, we will seize the first opportunity we get to exalt ourselves, won't we? The first opportunity we get to exalt ourselves, we'll seize it. Yet Jesus seized every opportunity available to humble himself. Everyone. The creator became the creature. The judge became the judged. 
the lawgiver became the law keeper. The exalted one became the humiliated one. The holy one became sin. The one who is life in himself became death. The master became the servant. That's a summary of Jesus' incarnation. God became man. He was the obedient son and suffering servant of the Old Testament that's promised. Why does Paul consider this humanity and humility of Jesus such good news? Why? Why does he consider this good news? He does so because the Father, listen, he considers it good news because the Father delights in his perfect Son. And this is our salvation. You see, Adam failed to be the obedient son and servant God called him to be. Israel failed to be the obedient son and servant God called him to be. And we fail to be the obedient sons and servants God calls us to be. But Jesus did not. He was faithful. And the Father delights in him. And this is our salvation. Why? Why is that our hope of salvation? Because we're in him. If we believe we are united with Christ and seen in him. The father delights in his son. And as those whom are united to his son, to his son, we are likewise his sons. And when he delights in Christ, he delights in us. Because of something we've done? No. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus. Isaiah 42 says this. And while I'm turning to Isaiah 42, turn to Matthew 3. Because I want you to see Father delights in his son, his servant. <clears throat> Don't read Matthew 3. Just listen to me read Isaiah 42, and then I'm going to turn you to Matthew. It says this. God says right here in Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Hear that? My chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will what? Bring forth justice to the nations. Now listen to Matthew chapter 3. And look at verse 16. Jesus is being baptized. And I want you to see the parallels from Isaiah 42. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Did you guys hear that in Isaiah 42? He says this. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, whom my soul delights in. In Matthew 17, 5, he says again that this is my beloved son, and whom I'm well pleased. And because the father delights in his son, and we are united to the son, he delights also in us. In Romans 6, it talks about how if we died with Christ, we also live with him and we are united to him. In Romans 8, Paul talks about this delight of God in us. Look at Romans 8 with me. 
This is the last passage I'll have you turn to. Romans chapter 8. Verse 28, he says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. You hear that? We're united in him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, declared righteous. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things. If you are in Christ, you're a brother of him, a son whom God promises not only to justify, but to sanctify and glorify. And you are a son from whom God will not spare any good thing. Some of you are probably burdened, I know I often am, by a sense of distrust that God would ever delight in you. You don't really trust that God would ever delight in you. And if you're banking on the fact that there's something in you that would generate some delight in God, then you're right, he won't. Because what is in you that God delights is an image that you bear of him. What is in you that God delights in is the fact that you're in his son. Nothing you believe... (coughs) Nothing you could do if you're in Christ would ever cause God to stop delighting in you. You understand that? Assuming you're in Christ, you cannot fall in a way that would cause God to stop delighting in you. Can you sin and do things that grieve Him? Yes. Can you ever be lost from Him so that He no longer delights in you? No. You cannot. If you're in his son. You are the one. Listen. If you're just trusting in Christ. As your sole sufficient cause before God. You are the one. Whom the father. Of whom the father declares the following. And I just want to end with this. And I want you to hear these. These scriptures. I want you to turn to them. I just want you to listen to them. I want you to hear what the father declares of you. If you're in Christ. In Zephaniah 3.17, says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Jeremiah 32.40, I will make with them, this is the Lord speaking, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. And then in verse 41, he says this, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Psalm 149.4 For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And the Lord takes, in Psalm 41, 
4711, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And one of my favorite texts that I encourage you to all go home and meditate on, Isaiah 62, 4 through 5. God says to his people, you shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, listen, you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's why Jesus is good news. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you. And praise you for sending your son. We thank you that he was a faithful son, a humble servant. Lord, we thank you that he was the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah to come through David's line. We just thank you that he lived a perfect life, Lord, and paid our penalty on the cross. So, Lord, so that those of us who trust in him will be declared righteous in your sight and will be adopted as your children, as your sons, as we are united together with Christ. And, Lord, as you rejoice over your chosen, faithful, obedient Son, Jesus. We know that in Him you rejoice over us. And Lord, I do not have any clue how that could be. I just don't deserve that. None of us do. And yet, Lord, you say you rejoice over us. Because of your Son, help us to trust you in that. Help us to rejoice in you because of that. We thank you that you gave us the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to turn... Um,